Hello everybody, welcome back to B-Side Stories. You're on Wellington Access Radio and you're here with Ruth Croft and my fellow announcer Perrine has a wonderful guest in the studio this evening and she's going to tell us all about her. Yes, kia ora, Tanya, welcome to B-Side Stories. Kia ora, thanks for having me. So this is Tanya Savisky-Mead from Just Speak New Zealand, Aotearoa. <laughs> um, so Just Speak is a youth-led movement for transformative change in criminal justice towards a fair, just and compassionate Aotearoa. So can you tell me why Just Speak needs to exist in mm. this day and age? This is a very good question. Um, as we like to say, uh, we don't really want to exist. An ideal um, uh, long-term plan for us is one in which we're not needed. But unfortunately, at the moment, um, the situation with New Zealand's justice system is is pretty dire. Um, there are a host of issues that we think need revisiting or transforming before we can really truly say that we have a fair, just and compassionate society. The first, uh, I guess, and the, probably the most infamous um, issue that we have in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is the mass incarceration of Māori, that our prison population uh, is about 50% Māori, represent, who are really represent 15% of the general population, uh, and that percentage is actually much higher even for women who are in prison, um, up to 70%. Um, and that reflects seventy percent. That is so high when you compare that to yeah. the population size, isn't yeah, it? It's truly galling. Um, and yeah, and I mean that's that sort of reflects, I think, the that the racial discrimination um, that persists throughout all parts of the justice system. So starting when you first have interaction with police, um, all the way through to courts and sentencing and so forth. Um, so the overrepresentation of Maori um, and the way in which um, uh, that rep- that kind of flows through all the way to incarceration, um, which obviously has really damaging long-term impacts on people and their whānau and, and their communities. So as a starting point, that's something that we need to urgently address. The second big thing that I think kind of justifies our existence is that we have a huge prison population, particularly for a society that likes to think of itself as somewhere um, where people get a fair go and that we're based on, um, that we support evidence-based policy and we like to do what's best for our communities long term. And yet we have one of the highest prison population rates in the OECD. Um, And that kind of reflects a whole bunch of decisions that were made over the last uh, 20 to 30 years which kind of are more about punishing people than actually who, who commit harm than doing what we can to make sure that um, the chances of that happening again are decreased um, and to address the, the drivers of offending, so address the causes that led to that offending. Um, yeah, so I think those are, re- I mean, uh, there's a whole host of other issues, obviously, and um, one of them that we've been talking about a lot in recent days is um, how many people end up in prison um, who are victims of violence themselves, who have been through the care and protection system, so they ended up in the care of Oranga Tamariki as young people um, and whose life circumstances when they're born and in their childhoods are really, really challenging um, and that pushes them into a system that is starts off supposedly being about caring for them and then ends up being about punishing them. And so what you're saying is our current criminal justice system is focused too much on punishment. Yeah. But what about the keeping the community safe side of things? Yeah, so obviously community safety is something that everyone wants to see more of and everyone wants to see enhanced. Unfortunately, prisons as a way of dealing with that and other punitive measures, other responses that are about punishing people, don't actually do a lot to 
to enhance community safety in the long term. Um, most people, when they spend time in the criminal justice system, particularly when they go to prison, will come back to their communities because our sentences are not, you know, even life sentences are not actually a lifetime. Um, but for many people, obviously, the, the vast majority of people don't serve those long sentences. They're in there for six months to three years or so, and then they come back to their communities. And so the question is, what have you done for that person to make sure that they have a better chance at leading a, uh, a non-violent, a more productive, a supportive life for them and their whanau? Um, and that's when community safety would really be enhanced. Uh, so what we need is more initiatives and more investment in the kinds of things that would actually help communities be safe, and not just safe but also flourishing, because as we all know, you know yeah. those issues of, um, of crime and of poverty and of social exclusion are all totally tied up in, in, in amongst each other. And so what is the difference between Just Speak, which mm. is a youth-led organisation, and other groups that are around that also want to sort out the justice <laughs> system in New Zealand? Um, yeah, that's a good question. There's sort of a few of us, um, some that we work with or kind of you know collaborate with on a regular basis or support the the. The, um, the work of might be the Howard League who are for penal reform, so they often focus a lot of programs that they do um, in prisons. Um, then there's People Against Prisons Aotearoa who are in the more down the abolitionist end of the spectrum. We interviewed them, ah. someone from People Against Prisons Aotearoa earlier this year. Cool, yeah. And they set out their framework for yep. us and what they're aiming for. Yeah, super yeah, super radical, lots of lots of things that we support in there. And similarly with Howard League, lots of things that we support in terms of what they're doing to try and improve um, the lives of people who are in prison right now. Um, so I guess what makes us different is that, yeah, we're, we're explicitly youth-led. So we started off as the youth branch of uh, Rethinking Crime and Punishment, which was um, Kim Workman's organisation. And he really started as someone who'd been through as a police officer running the prisons and then working in prison fellowship, saw it from the inside uh, and I guess saw firsthand um, the failures of that system and really wanted to be part of changing it. Um, and Just Speak was sort of started off as the youth wing of that, of rethinking and then ultimately became like the primary organisation. So for us that means that, you know, the youth-led bit means that we want to promote the voices of young people because young people are most affected by the justice system in the sense that if you're sentenced um, as a young person or you have an interaction with the justice system, that is going to have a profound effect on the rest of your life, more so than it happens to you in a later stage in life because it shapes the way that your life will go for many young people. Um, but young people are not really consulted about it, obviously, and um, yeah, people who are under 18 can't vote. Um, even those who can vote are often excluded from conversations about it. And we just think that there is, it's really our responsibility to make sure that young people feel included in that conversation and understand what's happening and have a chance to make their voices heard. Mm. So for us, that we think that's really important. And secondly is, is we want to be advocates for young people who are in the system as well. Yep. And young people whose parents or other mm. family members are in the system? Yeah, and often, so there's, there's another organisation actually who work really hard on that, which is Pillars. Um, and you know, we really support their work. They do a lot of practical um, kind of advocacy and support of whānau and families who have someone in prison. Um, yeah, we also see, I guess because we focus on advocacy, we really see our work um, contributing to all of those people because those who have a family member inside are tragically and enragingly much more likely to go, particularly children, that is, are ten, nine to ten times more likely to go to prison themselves. Mm. And that's just not fair. You know, like everyone deserves a good chance Um at life, and it's just not fair, or something that I think any of us would support the idea that um, that you your life is set up 
to fail for you in that way, in the way that we currently approach things. So 2018, it's getting to the end of the year, but you guys have had a pretty good year. Waikerio Mega Prison. Yeah. Tell us about that. Gonzo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was a really, um, that was a heartening start to the year. It was a challenging start to the year, but ultimately ended up really well. So, you know, as um, you'll know, the previous national government had decided that they needed to build a the largest prison that New Zealand has ever seen, and indeed large by in, even American standards, um, a double bunk prison in Waikerea, which is in the rural Waikato. And um, this was in response to the growing prison population um, for reasons that no one seemed to really be able to explain um, other than big changes to the Bail Amendment Act um, and just generally a more punitive approach. So um, we campaigned really hard against that mega prison. We thought that it was a really bad investment of use of resources um, at a time when the government, the new uh, Labour Greens, New Zealand First Government, had been talking about um, wanting to reduce the prison population, invest in success, not in failure, um, but felt or said that they felt caught between a rock and hard place. So, yeah, we, we went really hard on that. We worked with Action Station and a bunch of other organisations to try and put pressure on the government to not um, invest in failure. And we were really, really stoked to see that they didn't. Um, they did upgrade the facility and add a few more beds, which was a compromise that they felt they had to make. Um, but they did also invest in a new mental health facility, which is quite interesting. What else has happened this year? Oh, my gosh, it's been a big year. Um <laughs> We launched a huge project called Korero Pono, which is about people telling their stories of experience with the justice system. And that was mostly um, through an exhibition that was at, in Wellington at Port Toki Patterson Gallery, but it's also online on our website. And what do you think, or what did you aim to achieve with that? It exhibition? was really, it was, the idea was to share um, stories of people who have lived experience, so who've been in prison themselves or who have family who've been in prison as a way to try to address some of the stigma and the shame and the lack of understanding that many people have about what it's like to go to prison, but particularly what the impact is on your life after you've been in prison. So whether their sentence is, is more than the time served, it's about your loss of family, connections with family, loss of jobs, loss of homes, difficulty never finding work again, the stigma and the shame that surrounds it. Um, yeah, so for us, we, we really thought that that was something that many people needed to hear to understand the human cost of imprisonment and why it's so important that we work towards alternatives because the way that people experience prison means it just goes on to affect them for many, many, many years after they have, quote-unquote, served their time. 2018 was also 125 years since um, women's suffrage in New Zealand and you guys have been busy talking about that, haven't you? We have, yeah. So we thought that um, the anniversary of women's suffrage in New Zealand was a really good opportunity to um, look at who else doesn't get to vote or who doesn't continue does to not be able to vote in Aotearoa now. Um, and, yeah, the, the main most galling, I think, um, uh, issue there is that everyone who is a prisoner in New Zealand at the moment is unable to vote, has been prevented from voting. Um that was something that happened under the previous government um, where it was a member's bill. So someone just was like, hey, I don't know, I just think that prisoners, sh prisoners shouldn't be able to vote, put it put it up to the parliament, passed first reading, went to a select committee where they were like, meh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this may not have been what exactly happened. Yeah, <laughs> this is a uh, yeah. <laughs> highly, um, highly um, condensed version, <laughs> maybe not 100% representative of the truth. But essentially what did happen was that a law changed without really any debate 
um, any input from or kind of consideration of the huge um, human rights impact of that decision and how fundamental the right to vote is and, and something that, it's something that we should really think very carefully before we ever take away from anyone. And in this case, there was no evidence that it, anyone ever thought it through. It just felt like a knee-jerk reaction, basically. Um, I yeah. think a lot of people in New Zealand don't know that that happened either because yeah. it wasn't very publicised. I know a lot of people I've talked to mm. haven't heard about it or weren't sure about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that reflects how poorly it was handled when it when the bill passed is that there was no public debate. There was no discussion or even really a defence of it. You know, no one tried to say these are the very legitimate reasons, supposedly, while we're taking prisoners by the way, because there were no legitimate reasons. It was just... Um, just a really punitive act and, and something we think is really detrimental when you're trying to encourage people who are in prison to think of themselves as members of a community, have a stake in that community, feel that they belong, that they have a chance at participating in our society in the long term. Obviously, voting is a really important part of that. Um, so there's no good reason to take it away and we're campaigning for it to be reinstated. So at the elections last year, 6,919 men were stopped from voting because they were in prison, and 564 women. That's right. What kind of impact do you think that has on the way our country is run? Or I think it's really profound because what you're telling, you know, thousands and thousands of people is that they don't matter and that their voices don't matter. And I think that in this day and age, that's not something that we ever want to communicate to anyone who wants to participate in our society, who is a part of our society. Um, and when you, particularly when you think about the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, such a huge portion of the prison population is Māori, it's also the mass disenfran disenfranchisement of Māori. Mm. And that has profound implications, I think, for how New Zealand thinks about itself and, you know, how we see ourselves. But, you know, on a personal level, I, I recently um, uh, worked on a documentary with um, some people from a group organisation called Storybox and the spin-off about um, women who can't vote. And there were two other women who... Um, oh, yeah. I saw that, yeah. actually. Um, what was it called again? So it was called... The series is called Aunt Can't Don't, and it was women who aren't, can't, or don't vote. Um, and it was talking to, to them. And the section that we were in was called um, Can't. And uh, they interviewed two women, um, Marametua and Awatea, who talked about their experience being in prison and not being able to vote while they were there. It was... Yeah, it was heartbreaking, and it was and it was also enraging. You just yeah. thought, what what right does someone have to take that away from someone? Um, you know, and and what justification can you offer? It just it's so counterintuitive. It's so counterproductive, and it's just not. I just don't think it fits with what many of us as New Zealanders think that our country represents. Mm. Mm. So, shall we talk about Just Speak's vision for? <laughs> An ideal justice system. Oh, yeah, sure, let's do it. I, so I remember going to, I went to a talk by Kim Workman, who's mm. on your board. He, he's actually just recently just left. left our board. He still, he sort of remains um, a komatoa, someone that will always be part of the Just Speak Whanau, but he's trying to retire. He's not doing the greatest job at it at the moment, he just released a memoir, but um, yeah, he's still very much part of our whanau. But yes, yeah. Yes, so in that he talked about how prisoners or society would be better off if prisoners were treated as sufferers of trauma mm. and there were kind of therapeutic institutions yep. that could assist with that mm. is that a key part of absolutely your yeah because i think so many people who are in our justice system are there 
Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that they are there is that they have suffered a lot of harm and violence themselves, and that that obviously reduces your ability to cope with your life, to make good decisions. It, it takes away, you know, your humanity from you, and you won't solve the problem of, of harm, of crime, um, by locking people up because you haven't dealt with the issues that led them there. So many people ask us, like, what do you do with people who have committed real serious harm? I'm you know, not talking about low-level things. Um, how do you deal with that if not with prisons? And it's not to say that there wouldn't be accountability. Of course, accountability is crucial, but it's just finding a way to have accountability um, with support to say maybe there's, a, there's programs or there's institutions or there's processes by which you come into the care and protection of that system and people say, what happened to you? How do you feel about what you did? What needs to be done so that you don't do it again? And they look at the person as an individual and they figure out what's needs to, what needs to be done for them. So I think that would be a huge part of our vision is that we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach and that we start with reducing harm, preventing it from happening again is our primary, it's our, one of our you know, primary objectives. Does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm sure the vision is wide. The vision is wide. That's one of many parts. But yeah. I think a lot of it comes back to a difficulty that lots of us have imagining and alternatives because we've all grown up under yes. the system. We know we all, we're so overwhelmed with like crime shows and procedure, you know, TV procedurals and true crime podcasts and, um, you know, stories about crime and justice that reinforce over and over again um, you know, how entrenched our current system is, which is about punishment and which sees people as either bad or good, but very rarely in the middle, which most of us fall into that <laughs> space, you know. So it's really all hard. All of us. All of us, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I think it's really hard um, for people to imagine that. But I, one thing that's that's really interesting, I think that I find people grasp when you try to say, let's imagine an alternative world, is to start with policing, because often, obviously, that's most people's um, first point of contact with the system. And also something, you know, most people have had some interaction with police, even if it's just calling noise control or, you know, getting stopped with a breathalyzer or what have you. And it's just thinking about how many, what are all the different roles that are, that police um, as an organisation are asked to fill? And how might we imagine an alternative in which an organisation that... Um, you know, is built around control and it has a, a really unfortunate history of racism, <laughs> sexism, and and kind of um, quite a punitive mindset, was instead, you know, reformed to think about um, care and de-escalating situations and putting people in touch with services that were best suited to whatever situation they were in. For example, you know, you see, um, you see a friend and you, you see them having a fight with their partner. And you think, I really want this to stop. I really don't want um, anyone to get hurt. But also, this both of these people are my friends and I don't want them to end up um, getting in a situation where it escalates and one of them goes to prison, you know, because they've, they've been, um, you know, it's gotten worse. So who do I call? Why don't you call someone who's a trained, um, someone who has training in these kinds of situations, who's focused on restoring the balance of um, those people's mana and de-escalating that situation, providing those people as individuals or as a couple the help that they need right there what if you saw someone experiencing an episode of mental distress like they were having a psychotic episode what if you had a hotline that you could call that was someone who was a psychologist or has a, who is a professional who could step in and go hey this is what this person needs right now I'll come to your house I'll do an assessment keep them safe and then let's figure out where they go there at the moment lots of these situations these really different situations with really complex and different needs are all kind of managed by one organisation that's not really trained 
in all these circumstances mm. to do the best there. So I think it starts with that. It starts with when you see things going wrong, who do you call and yeah. how do you help? Yeah. So yeah. that's quite a long-winded no. explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Top-notch um, <laughs> intel. Um, and, you know, you do see some good stuff coming through the police and some people doing really good work in there. But as an institution, it's, you know, there's a lot of fear and mistrust. Yeah, and, and, and some of that is, like, comes down to, yeah, this history of exclusion of, of um, you know, the queer and rainbow communities feeling really marginalised and um, um, the the admitted, you know, police admitted themselves, uh, history of, of racial discrimination and just generally this insular culture, you know, this, this focus on kind of catching baddies, which is something that, you know, comes, we're, it's a side, that's the water we swim in in a way mm-hmm. is, is that mindset. So it's, it's, it's a long process, I think, of working towards an organisation that um, actively supports to de-escalate things and help people rather than punish them. Mm-hmm. I've left this a little bit late in the piece because <laughs> this is probably the kind of thing you'd ask at the start. But can you just tell us a bit about how Just Speak works? Um, you've got a few staff members. You've got a board. Mm-hmm. How does that? Yeah. So, um, so there's two where we have two staff members uh, at the moment, and yeah, board of seven, uh, I think. Um, so, Kiki, who is my my number one, my wingman, my colleague, uh, uh, she is the projects and volunteer coordinator. So she supports our volunteers to work on all the projects that they're doing and helps give oversight of all the different stuff that we do. I'm the director, so I just kind of do whatever else is needed. You're the boss. <laughs> uh, yeah, <technically>, <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> and yeah, so we run a bunch of different projects. Um, our primary focus is on advocacy. So we just really want to be the voice, a voice for change, um, for transformative change, um, rather than delivering like projects or programs in the community, for example, which other organisations do. So we do, basically we're trying to change, we're trying to inform people, we're trying to change the conversation, we're trying to broaden the conversation um, so that some of our things that we do are part of that are campaigns, like the one I talked to you about, about Waikiria. Previously we did a campaign to get young people included in the youth court, 17-year-olds in the youth court jurisdiction, uh, exhibitions, um, so our our storytelling project, and then research that kind of supports our vision of a you know transformative change in the justice system. It's a lot on. Yeah. <laughs> and highlights in the next year? Oh, yeah. Um, so we're really excited to tour Kōrero Pono around the country, hopefully. And oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. We'd like, at this point, we're looking, hopefully, at, um, at hosting it in Christchurch and Nelson, um, and then probably Auckland as well, if we can find somewhere. Um, we're looking to start... Um, investigating a potential to do some school workshops, which we're really excited about, reaching more um, young people, people who, um, you know, finishing high school and thinking a bit about their place in the world and, and yeah. Future Just Speak future, board members quite. and staff members. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, future-proofing our organisation. Um, yeah, and then we'll also be obviously keep working on our campaign um, for getting prisoners the right to vote. And we're really hopeful that, that obviously that campaign wraps up quickly because the government commits to it, but, um, <laughs> but we're in it for the long haul as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Tanya, for coming and sharing what Just Speak are up to today. You're welcome. And you'll have to come back and tell us how you go on those ones. Yep, it'd be my pleasure. Thanks Thank for listening to B-Side Stories this week. Thanks, everybody. Have a great evening. Yeah, and uh, Ruth, happy birthday for Saturday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 21 again. Yeah. 21 again. <laughs> Enjoy your evening, everyone, and uh, remember to put sunscreen on the lower back if you are out gardening and don't Ooh. get burned. <laughs> Tune in next week on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM for B-Side Stories.